All right. We've got just a couple minutes, I see. I'll give uh, one or two more minutes. We, uh, we are going to continue with what we started last week. And uh, I'll, maybe I'll put this on the board again like I had last week just as a kind of a refresher. So, you know, there's, there are different ways you can, you can talk about this stuff, but in terms of our Christian faith and life, uh, Jesus, of course, as we know, is at the head. And, you know, when I, when I say Jesus, I'm talking about word, baptism. I'm talking about the gospel, right? Like the forgiveness of sins and being drawn into the body of Christ. So, you know, when I have Jesus here at the top, that's what I'm referring to as all this stuff. And then comes the holy rhythm of life. And so, from Jesus comes then the Eucharistic life. And this is where everything happens. And springing out of the Eucharistic life then is we learn a life of mercy. So we learn from Jesus the life of mercy. And then we also learn the life of love. And then from there, we learn a life of obedience. And from that comes calm and stability. And then, of course, it all, you know, fuels us back to think of Jesus. And this is the holy rhythm of the Christian life. The holy rhythm of the Christian life. And this is... So, you know, if you kind of think about this just this way, as I talked about last week, life at the Eucharist is where Jesus deals with our prayers. And we're learning His mercy. And so His mercy for us at the Eucharist then starts to cultivate a life of mercy and a life of love. And from there... We learn obedience, and and as I said last week, a lot of Christians try to put obedience up at the top, and then it's never right, and we realize we can't do it, and so, you know, it creates either Pharisees or uh, people give up, and so in this way, we learn a life of service and calm and stability in service. And so the handout today is going to take us through a, a life of service as Jesus describes it. Yes. Um, can you talk about how different denominations who might not have an Eucharistic life? Like what's this diagram? Oh, well, so a non-Eucharistic, um, a, a kind of a non-denomination or, or a non-Eucharistic life will look a little different. So, you know, you'll have 
<clears throat> there's a couple of different things I could do or say. So, like with decision theology, so before the age of, you know, where you make your decision, right? You're sort, sort of in this no man's land or you're in this like protective zone until you get to the age of reason. And so like if this, let's say this is heaven and then down below this is hell, uh, a person would be hanging out in this gray zone until they get to the age of reason. But then when you get to the age of reason, then you're asked to make a decision for Jesus. And so this becomes the critical moment. And this is the way uh, these kinds of Christian expressions talk, right? When were you saved? When did you, right? Because what that is, is when you get to the age of reason and you're, you're to make a decision for Jesus, that's when you're supposed to cross the threshold. And if you make your decision for Jesus, then you move up into the heavenly rank or the heavenly realm. But if you come to the age of reason and you're asked, are you ready to make your decision for Jesus yet? If you're at the age of reason and you say, no way, then in their minds, what you're doing is you're going the other direction. That's just kind of like my own, like thinking through the process of like how it happens. But what it is is, you know, there's, there's different confessional principles. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, but like at the time of the Reformation, there was the Roman Catholic um, confessional principle, which they still have. And then on the other side, you have the Calvinist confessional principle. So with the Roman Catholics, you have scripture and tradition or ecclesiasticism. So the ecclesiastical hierarchy dictates what meaning is, scripture, what scripture means. Uh, if you go to the Calvinist side, reason dictates what scripture means. Now, for the Calvinists, they said there is one true, objective, overarching, reasonable interpretation of scripture. And that dictates what scripture means. Lutherans, the scriptural principle is and was at the time of the Reformation, scripture interprets scripture. So what that would be is then the cross event is the center that gives sense to all the scriptures. So that's why for Lutherans, Jesus is at the top here. But if you take a reason dictates what scripture means, then it's more subjective. We would say it's more about the person bringing something to the table. And so this comes out in, theo in their theology, I think, because this, in a sense, is, I think, I think they would say Jesus is at the top too. And you could kind of tell me what you think about this, because I'm kind of going on the fly here and just thinking about like, what this would look like. But it's almost like an obedience would be 
synonymous or at the top with, with Jesus. And from here then would flow not Eucharistic life, but then love and mercy, so on and so forth, love. But it's all predicated on being obedient. And this can be a difficult thing because obedience is hard, isn't it? I mean, it is really hard. And who can, I mean, this is why Jesus died on the cross for us, right? Because we, we stumble and fall and we're weak and we have moments where we're not obedient. And, you know, I mean, I think maybe I shared this with you once before, but it's just always etched in my head that Athanasius said that the soul is never in a static position, but it's always in movement. And so the soul is going to move in one of two directions. It's either going to move to the things of God or it's going to move to the things of the flesh. And so, you know, if you think about Athanasius thinking through that, he would say that we waffle back and forth between obedience and a selfish life. And so if it's if this is the driving principle, if obedience is the driving principle for a Christian's life, then a lot of bad things could happen down the road. And for one, you're going to lose sight of who, right? Like, who's Jesus and what is he, what is he doing for me? But in this case, we're, it's always Jesus. The central focus is always on Christ and his and His sacramental gifts and it's through that so it's something outside of us that fuels us does that make sense i mean can anybody would anybody say this would look differently like from a you know from a uber protestant perspective what would it look any different than that i can't yeah yeah is he not a religious Is he not what? That you have to decide. Yeah, you have to decide. And I mean, Billy Graham, you know, he, he did a lot, right? And he had his crusades and filled stadiums and all that stuff. But he was not a baptismal guy. And so, um, you know, yeah. How is once saved, always saved? Because that's another... I've heard that. Once saved, always saved. Yeah. So they don't account for the... Do they just say, well, I sinned and I repent and we're back? Or how... That's what seems like the loop to me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there is that... Paul, uh, Paul, I don't know. Well, would, it, would anybody else that knows a little bit about this care to comment? Yeah. I spent a lot of time with Baptists. Uh, all I know is David was talking about, oh, my brother, he was baptized, he's a carnal Christian. So they still would say, yeah, he's not saved, he does all these backsliders. Backsliders. Yeah, right. But they would still say, yeah, he's got his habit. I remember one, there was one time when I went to a, a, an Assemblies of God church, and I was like 19 years old, and a friend drugged me there. And I, I was this atheist, right? And um, 
and I'm sitting in the back and they have an altar call. So this would be like part of it, right? Like, all right, I really screwed up this week. So I got to make a trip. I got to head up to the altar for the altar call. And I'm sitting there just taking it all in. And then this teenage girl is sitting next to me and I didn't know who she was. And she says, you got to bless me. I, I need to be saved. I, and I'm like, you don't want me blessing you. I'm like, I don't do that. <laughs> you should look at me, you know, I'm the one, you know. And, you know, you, and, but it's kind of like this continual reset, right? It's like, and, you know, I wonder if that's part of this, like, I need to be obedient I need to love, I need to be, well, I put love here twice. What was this supposed to be? Uh, I guess, so. I don't know. Calm, so can, can you have calm and stability over here? But, um, you know, maybe this is like always the reset, like, okay, here's Jesus. We present Jesus to you. Now be obedient and take him in. Now, love, be merciful, give, serve it, it's right it's all law that's the thing if you if it's not like this then it does become all law and so then you get into this trap of okay i need to be obedient oh i feel obedient today i'm doing good and then tomorrow you mess it up and so then you're back to and it just becomes like this continual loop but without an understanding of grace and so then servanthood and all this love and all this stuff becomes this hard, like you said, law. Yes. It makes Jesus' work not good enough. Say that one more time. Jesus' work not good enough. Yes. It makes Jesus' work not good enough. And boy, then it is really kind of on you all the time. Yes, Donna. Uh, we rely on the Holy Spirit. Yep. Yep. And the word and his gifts to move us and to bring us exactly to salvation. That's right. We don't rely on ourselves or right. reasoning or it's only the work That is that is exactly right. And that all comes right through the word and the sacraments, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I only could say that because I was baptized twice. Okay. And I participated in some altar calls. Okay. <laughs> so you know. I might not know that about me, but... Uh, That's good to know. I wasn't until I met Pastor Nelson that I began to realize that God's grace is sufficient for me. <clears throat> because I felt like I had to do that thing. You know, mm -hmm. like, how could I have made a choice for Jesus as a baby? Nobody showed up. Like, someone chose for me. You know, my poor parents had to deal with that. <laughs> I felt like I was, you know, being obedient. I still felt like I was being obedient to Jesus, but, you know, yeah. we don't, it's not about what we're doing. So. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's true. That's good. Thank you. Yes, Kathy. Uh, I can remember like watching Billy Ramble out when I was 
you know, I'm going to have an altar call and I'd be like, in my heart, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. the altar. And then it was like, the next time you come on, I'm like, shake because I felt like I had to do it again. <laughs> it's just this constant feeling of falling short and falling short. Of course I'm falling short. But I mean, it's this condemning feeling. And uh, then when I got older, I started listening to Christian music. It was all very driven this way. And the sad thing in the songs is that there's always this yearning to know Jesus. There was one song, I want to know you in the now. Yeah. And after I understood Lutheran doctrine more, I was like, I want to know you in the now. You can know him in the now. Every time you go to the Eucharist, there he is, and you're touching him, and he's touching you. And, yeah. And it's, but there's that sadness in other denominations that it just can't grab a hold of him. I can't get up there and drag him down for myself. Yeah. It's just a sad treadmill. There's this uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so you can, so, so, you know, maybe like my theory then, or my thought would be, if, if you were to be honest with yourself in the, the non-Eucharistic view, can you ever really have calm and stability where you're at peace about yourself and your, relationship with Jesus, right? Like, is it ever good enough? And so can you really have that calm and stability? No. Yeah. I think that some people, I have a stepson and his wife, they seem to have calm stability in their faith, but in my opinion, they're just missing something. I'm sure they're gonna be in heaven. Sure. But Absolutely. Missing out on the strength that they could get from from the Eucharistic life—that's how I see. How I see. I don't know quite how they're so sure, but they are. I would say. Well, you you all here at St. John have such a great uh, such a great opportunity uh, because the Eucharist is offered like it is here, and so you really get to experience what a Eucharistic life is like. And so many people just don't have that, right? Like it changes the way you, if you understand the doctrine of the, of the Eucharist and Jesus, and you're participating it, in it and receiving it often, it changes the way you view everything. And I mean, even just looking at scripture and so looking at servanthood, you know, the way Jesus puts all this together in the scriptures and even, I think maybe I've shown you this before, uh, so I don't mean to be repetitive, but you know, these things just kind of blow me away. Like if you go to 2 Peter 1, you know, I don't know if I told you this, but when I was at the seminary, and I was a young, budding seminary student, and uh, I was in a, in a New Testament class with then President Dr. Dean Wenthe. And, you know, we had just taken Greek and we were just taking Hebrew. And um, he's talking to us and he says, uh, You know, gentlemen, you know what I think heaven is like? 
And we're trying to picture, we're waiting for like this grand picture of angels and archangels and pat, you know, sapphire stone, gold paved roads. And he says, you know what I think heaven's going to be like? It's going to be like reading the Greek and the Hebrew. And we're all like, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, try again. I don't think so, you know. And, uh, but, but I get it now because I do. I actually do. So <laughs> I know it. I know it. Uh, but so in, and here's, here's a great reason why. Because in 2 Peter 1, if, so let's just look at this. We'll skip to verse 3. We'll, we'll skip the prologue or the greeting. Peter says, so his, his being Jesus, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love." For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what he does is, in, even just in English is amazing. So like what I would say is, read this, when you have some time, read it very slowly. And you know, if you're kind of a linear thinker, uh, you, you'll, you'll find great satisfaction by doing this, you could take a piece of paper and you could just like line it down like, kind of like this. You know, you could say, okay, you know, you start off with divine, his divine power. So his divine power would be starting at the top with Jesus. And then through the knowledge of him, you have all these things that start to happen. What he does in verse 4, well, in verse 3, it says that uh, he has given you, um, he has gifted you with the things of life and godliness. Now, the life that he, that is used here is uh, the word for like spiritual life, it's zoe, so it's not just a fleshly or biological life, but it's a spiritual life. And then godliness, the word for godliness would literally mean good worship. Because uh, the word is the, is the word used for, you know, literally to worship. But then gifting... So, let's see, it says here, he has granted to us. Well, in Greek, it, it is gifted. 
But if you can just follow me on this, it is perfect tense, which means it's completed, right? It's participle, so it's an ongoing verb. So think about that. It's a completed action, but it's an ongoing verb, okay? And it's passive, which means you don't do it, but it's done to you. So what he's saying here is, you all have been gifted. It's a completed thing for you. The gift is complete. You don't have to wait for it. But it has ongoing benefits that never stop because it just keeps going like this. And you didn't do it, but it's done to you. It's given to you. So he's... Peter is preparing us then for verse 4 and verse 5 for what follows. So this is a thing like Lutherans are really good about understanding order. And so you already have this participle then about gifting and godliness and life. And then it's through knowledge that he's called us according to his glory and excellence. Then in verse 4, through these great and precious promises given to us, you may be partakers of the divine nature. So here's the way it looks in Greek, and I, I think maybe I have done this, I don't know, I can't remember, but it's just striking to me, because you know in English, order matters to a point, right? But in Greek, Order, it doesn't matter. So you can put things in whatever order you want. Okay, so what this is, divine nature and partakers. So he, he puts this in this specific order in the Greek. So divine nature is on the outside but this is the word for fellowship. So when the, the apostles refer to communion fellowship, this is the word that they use. So what he's doing is he's showing us that the partakers are encapsulated by the divine nature. The divine, so the picture is that the divine nature comes and surrounds the Christians with his presence. That's what he's doing in this Greek text. He wants you to see that he wraps you up in his love. So, so if you think about it just in this way, you have gift giving that leads to life and godliness, good worship, and so you are given these great and precious promises to become partakers, so you're wrapped in his love. And then from there, he rattles off, he rattles off the life of holiness and virtue. Now, in verse three, at the end of verse three, he talks about Jesus's glory and excellence. 
And then he talks, so after this, then he talks about the Christian's virtues, the Christian's life. And look at the order. So if you're a linear thinker and you find great pleasure in like charting things, are there anybody like that in here that loves, loves to, yeah? There's probably a few, right? Nobody's, nobody's owning it though. I know Martha, right? Yeah? All right. <laughs> okay. So what he says here is, in verse 5, he is telling us to supplement our faith. So he starts off with faith. So faith is the first thing. So supplement your faith with virtue. Now, here's what's interesting. Back up there in verse 3, when it talks about Jesus' glory and excellence, the word excellence is the same word that's used for virtue. Supplement your faith with virtue. So Christ's excellence becomes our virtue. So you go from faith to virtue, from virtue to knowledge, from knowledge to self-control, from self-control to patient endurance, and from patient endurance to godliness, from godliness to brotherly love, that's the word Philadelphia in Greek, and from Philadelphia to agape, which is divine love. Divine love is last on in that list. And perhaps that's because the divine love is the highest love, and it is the most difficult to obtain. And so it becomes this journey. And so like in Lutheran theology, we talk about um, justification by grace through faith. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's a gift and you get the whole thing all at once. Boom. You don't have to wait for it. You don't get a little piece and then you have to wait for more later. You get the whole thing. So that's the Lutheran doctrine of justification, right? But then the life of sanctification is one that continues to grow and develop. And that's the way we look at it. So when you look at this, you know, so if you kind of blew it up on a screen and then you kind of stepped back and you looked at, at 1 Peter 1, you would say, I love the order to this. Because there's gift giving, there's life and godliness that's given through that gift giving, and then it leads to a divine participation in the divine nature, which is Eucharistic for us. And from the Eucharistic life, then springs all these things, all these holy attributes. Now, isn't that comforting? to realize that when you go to the Eucharist, yes, Kathy, when you go to the Eucharist and you're looking to Jesus and he's feeding you and you've just heard the scriptures, you've said your prayers, and now Jesus is doing all this stuff in you. What a wonderful life that is, right? And it's good for everything. It's good when your life is good and you're busy and your kids are 
running all over the place and you're, you run in and you, you get the Eucharist and give thanks to God and receive the benediction and out you go back into the craziness. It's good if you're sick and in the hospital. It's good at the end of your life when you're, you're lying there waiting to go be with Jesus. Yeah. Kathy. I have a question about the word godliness. Yes. In, in three, you said God, godliness was good worship. Is that the same Greek word when godliness appears later in verse 6? It is. <clears throat> yeah. That really bugs me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because it's like that totally changes things. Why can't they write good worship in, in this? <laughs> godliness is something I have to do. I have to be godly. <laughs> Well, but saying that if it said good worship, then I know that's not me cranking it up. Right. Why can't they put that in there? Why does it have to be? Well, I know that's always the. <clears throat> I know it. I know it, but you know that's the beauty, though, of then you having a past, you know, having pastors that can say, you know, here's what it really is, and um, yeah. Um, so here, so now here, uh, jump. So since we're talking about this, jump back to First um, Peter four. We're going to be at this handout for the next three weeks, I think. But <laughs> but that's okay by me if you're okay with it. Um, if you look at First Peter four, so we're looking at verse. Um, well, just for context, go to verse 12. So 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Yeah, so 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, Think about that for a second. You share in Christ's sufferings. So if you are partakers of the divine nature, this is bound up in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus too. So you partake in the divine nature. You participate in all of what Jesus has given. So you're, you're rejoicing insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, this is remarkable particularly at verse 17. 
for the, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, okay? So what will be the end of those? So it says, who have not obeyed the gospel of God. In Greek, it is those who have not been persuaded. Now that means something different to me. Because I must first have something brought to me in order to persuade me, right? Persuade instead of obey. And so these, the, the people who are in big trouble here are those who have heard the gospel and not been persuaded. Yeah, there's, and even to, uh, to not deny, even just to be unmoved, just to be like, it's literally like um, to be unaffected. Refused, okay. Yeah, I think it's even more like, you know, it's just like in the book of Revelation when, uh, when Jesus says, um, woe to you, uh, I would rather that you be hot or cold, but you're lukewarm, and so since you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so the lukewarm are the ones, it's not the hot, it's, you know, you got the hot and the cold, but the ones that Jesus really focuses on are the ones who are lukewarm. They're unaffected by the gospel. Yes. It would seem, when I hear that, to me it seems as though the lukewarm people would be, in a sense, safer because they've not refused. Uh-huh. They've not said no. Mm-hmm. Hanging out, you know, to use a passive terminology, in limbo. Yep, in limbo. Yep, yep. So they haven't said no. Yeah. Um, so. Well, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting thing because they haven't said no. Right, they're just sort of like, eh, I could take it or leave it. Six of one, half dozen of the other. Jesus, yeah, he's okay, but you know, I don't know, I'm more, you know, this really gets to kind of the first commandment, right? Because if you're, if you're lukewarm, then your heart's being tugged by idols. And so the Lord is not above and first, right? There's other things that are capturing the heart and the mind and the soul. And so it's a person tossed by the wind, right? Like Jesus says of John the Baptist, he is no reed shaken by the wind. You know, he's not lukewarm. Um, is there not still hope for the person who's being tossed about more so than the person, although the atheist, yeah. <laughs> says no, um, but yes, there is. Yeah. There as well. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Like, there's hope for everybody. Um, and and that's, that's where the church prays. And we pray for those who are lukewarm. I mean, we all, what's hard about this is we all have someone in our family that are, that fit the lukewarm category and you go, oh, right? And these are the people that keep you up at night praying for them, right? Because you are worried about their salvation. And 
Um, so, you know, with Jesus, there's always hope. And this is why he's always at work. So he hears our prayers and he's always at work in these people's lives. So, you know, don't take that as there's no hope um, for, Luke, for the lukewarm. But, but I would say this, though, that, and this is, so Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa was a Cappadocian father in the early church, and he said he would, he thought it was easier to deal with spirited atheists than people who were those who are not persuaded, that were just sort of flapping in the wind. So, but that doesn't mean that God can't, you know, he, it doesn't mean he can't turn them and, and make them, you know, active and alive and so forth. But so then what, what is interesting here is it says, and think about this even for us. Verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Now, ungodly there is the word for worship, but those who don't worship. So it's the same word as in 2 Peter 1 for worship. So it carries the notion of an active life. You know, to me, that, that Greek word sebomai is to actually, so in the Old Testament it would be to literally gather to the tent of meeting, gather to the Holy of Holies and wait for God's presence, wait for God to come in the fire. And so there's a lot going on in all this. So, you know, I guess we could say all of this is kind of pred it predicates then the life of servanthood that we're going to look at because Jesus is talking to the disciples and then the apostles about a life of service and what that's supposed to look like. And in the church, it looks differently than the world because in the world, the world often looks at the people who are the strongest are the ones who lead and serve and do all this stuff. But in the church, it's different. And that's what Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to get to. So, Jesus is the preeminent image of service. And so, if, if we are going to think about a life of service ourselves, we must first see the way Jesus is. And so we kind of covered just the first parts on page one of the handout last week. St. Matthew 8, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. St. Luke 22, the disciples argue about greatness. But then in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, Jesus says, yet I am among you as one who serves. So, we serve even in our weakness and much good comes from 
a service and weakness. Because if we are weak, but we serve, then it's like the Lord makes room for his power to go forth and we can't get in the way, right? Because if I, if I come up and I'm like, I've got all the stuff, I, I've got all the tools I need, and I am just the guy, and I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that, now watch me do this. Well, now all of a sudden it's real blurry, right? Because everybody's going, is it him or is it God? But if the servant is weak and bears all his or her troubles, and then good comes, Everybody can say, boy, Jesus is so good because he does all this even in the midst of our own weaknesses and our own failures. And it really is a great thing because it helps us to see Jesus at the top again, right? Because it's not my obedience and my goodness and my this and my that, but it's all Jesus. So <clears throat> if you look at 2 Corinthians 8, <clears throat> let's go there. Start at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So now just, again, if you like order, and you like the way things kind of go out. Note, so first of all, the Macedonian church. They're extremely impoverished. What happens? They give of their means, and they even give beyond their means. But now thinking about this order up here on the board, look at what is said in verse and this not as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us see that it's, it's Moses on the mountain it's the two tablets of, of right of stone with the ten commandments it's like I talked about last week the from before the eyes neged and how I, I first look into the face of Jesus and I find myself, I find identity and meaning for my life when I look into the face of Jesus and he looks into my face. And then after he blesses me and loves me, then I turn and I look into the face of my neighbor 
And I find that even in my neighbor, I find my identity, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So from before the eyes, my neighbor is brought before my eyes. I look into my neighbor's face and I find... <laughs> and as I, as I find meaning and try to help, I also find a blessing from my neighbor and it becomes reciprocal. I, and the thing about this is, this is all bound up in the nature of the Trinity because you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what you have is this, um, how, does the, how do the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another? There's this early church word that was used at the ecumenical councils, pericoresis, and we get the word choreography from this word, and it means interpenetration. And so there's this reciprocal nature of how the Father relates to the Son, who relates to the Holy Spirit, who relates back to each other, right? There's this reciprocal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity dances, okay? And so creation is, is made in this same pattern. So this is why God looks at, God creates Adam, and he now, God now has this reciprocal relationship with his creation through his relationship with Adam. Remember, God walks in the garden in the cool of the day, but then he also says, oh, poor Adam, he's all alone, he needs a helper, Eve, and so he creates this same reciprocal nature in marriage, and then you fast forward and you get to the, the people of Israel out in the wilderness and Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. First table of the law is the vertical relationship between God and humanity. The second table of the law is the horizontal nature between person to person. What is going on here? It's the reciprocal nature of how we find ourselves in God, we look into God's face, we find out who we are, we learn about his love, we are given identity. Then we go out into the world and we encounter our neighbor and we look into our neighbor's face and here becomes a reciprocal nature from person to person, love back and forth and we find our identity. And this is all bound up in, in 2 Corinthians 8 when you have the Macedonian church, how in the world are they able to provide beyond their means without losing their minds? How are they able to give beyond their means and still have calm, stability, joy, and hope? Because they first look into the face of their Savior, and that's what's going on in that verse. They first gave themselves to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, we all, if we get it out of order, then we have problems. If obedience has to be at the top of, of, of servanthood and, and everything else, then we 
look at our neighbor with angst and we go, I could give them this $20 bill or I could, I could give them my time or I could do this or I could do that, but then I'm going to have, then I've got to go without. And now how am I going to make it? I mean, that's a life without looking into the face of Jesus. Yes, Donna. I noticed in those verses that you read, three times it mentions act of grace. Three times it mentions act of grace. Good, good note. I didn't notice that. But see, if there you go then. So there's this constant movement of grace. This constant giving of grace. And abounding in their joy. I mean, look at that, verse 2. Abounding in their joy according in, in view of their deep poverty. They're abounding in the riches, in their riches. Wow. And so then, if you look on just a little bit, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So in case we miss verse 5, Paul tells it to us explicitly in verse 9. So we look into the face of Jesus. So in our serving, in our giving, in our tithing, in our time, in our lives of mercy, we look at Jesus. And also if you're looking at Jesus and you're looking at how, in, I mean look at that verse. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So if you're, that cha- that's a game changer. Because if you feel a little uneasiness about tithing or serving or loving, if you're looking at Jesus, and you're looking at all that he is from the Gospels, it really makes it easier. Because alongside of his poverty, so what would, what would his poverty be? What would the poverty of Jesus be? Human. Yeah, in the flesh for one thing, right? Good, good point. And what else? Would there be anything that would go along with that? Dying on the cross cross like a thief, right? Because you've got Jesus, then you've got two thieves. So the casual onlooker sees Jesus and two other thieves and they think, ah, a thief, right? And, but alongside of that then is the, the rest of the story is resurrection. And we can't forget that the centrality of the resurrection of our Savior in in the giving and the serving and everything else. Because 
To look at the passion of Jesus is to recognize that he means to bring much good. I mean, he does it in the cross, and then we see it in the resurrection, the turnaround, right? And so we see that as hard as serving might be, good is going to come from it for others, but also for yourself. Because we learn so much in these, in these things. Like, so I had, we're going to run out of time here. Yeah, maybe I'll, remind me to tell you a story next time. And it's a, it's a pastoral story uh, about a, a woman in poverty that was a member of my parish. And um, so just kind of somebody like raise your hand next week and say, you got to tell me that story about the woman, okay? And I'll tell you the story. Um, maybe this would be a good place to stop. So next week, I promise, we will get into the washing of the disciples' feet, okay? All right. Let, let us pray. Almighty God, you show mercy to your people in all their troubles. Grant us always to recognize your goodness, give thanks for your compassion, and praise your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.